Welcome to the Ministry Podcast. It is such a privilege that you would tune in. All of my content is designed to bring hope to the dreamers and doers that Jesus offers us a better way to life and Jesus offers us a better way to lead. I hope you enjoy today's episode. I'd love for you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We are done with our collection of talks about slogans are broken. We are moving on, uh, and I'm excited for what we have for tonight. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8. I want to talk about, we're starting a new collection of talks. It's called Resilient Discipleship. So for years, I really believe the church has believed this lie that all we need are more brilliant disciples. And so churches have kind of put together Sunday school, put together workshops, and we just think if we just simply get smarter, then this world will be saved. And so we put a huge emphasis on apologetics, which again, I love apologetics. It's really helpful for us to be able to defend our faith. But at the same time, I think more and more the way I study the culture and recognize we're in such an anxious time, just took a very quick look at the news and the way people are responding to the election. We are anxious. Some people are angry. Some people are running for the hills. And so I actually think in an anxious society, we don't lack brilliance, but what we do lack is resilience. So really, I think the biggest difference is here is brilliance can define what unity should look like, but resilience is the one who actually can defend unity and make it happen. Brilliance knows what's right, but resilience does what's right, even when it hurts. So I really believe as we go through the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at resilient discipleship. And I really want us, yes, we can use more brilliant disciples. But more than that, what's more even compelling in our time is we need resilient disciples. We are able to love when others hate. We're able to serve even when it's humiliating. We're able to give even when it hurts. I told my wife, I hate when I introduce a new talk because I always know that the Lord tries to teach me the lesson. So the whole emphasis we're going to have over the next few weeks is to be resilient. This has been one of the hardest weeks that we've had. My dog, I had to put him down yesterday. My grandmother was tested positive for COVID. So was my father. So was my sister. Um, the election happened this year, uh, this week, uh, this year, right? This week was a year. And uh, all these things like, all right, Lord, I get it. You're teaching me what resilience looks like. And I really think it's been kind of interesting. A lot of people, uh, Christians on Twitter right now, and I know a lot of you aren't on there. You're missing out. Uh, but they're saying, okay, let's, let's call out. It's kind of terrifying. They said, let's call out all the pastors who prophesied that Trump would win in a landslide, and let's call them out. And so it's just this crazy thing on Twitter right now. They're quoting these people. It's really dangerous and, and really scary. But it's actually pretty interesting because a lot of pastors are making prediction of how revival will come. And I think a lot of us are really falling short, and I know that my job is not to be a prophet. So I have joy in never predicting what the future will look like because then I don't have to be owned on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter about how bad I was. But here's something I will be prophetic about. I actually think revival, this renewal, this where the church comes back into influence, I really believe that will happen when we begin to pursue resilient discipleship, when we are emotionally healthy, spiritually healthy, Right? And so this is really the desire that we have. So here's uh, the first point, kind of like the overall idea of this series, and we're going to look at it specifically uh, for tonight. Look, we forfeit any hope of resilience if we only serve God when it makes sense. If in your discipleship of Jesus, if you only serve him when it makes sense to you, there's a huge chance you will not actually gain this resilient life that Jesus wants for you and wants for me. So much of discipleship is hard. 
and we have to do things that isn't comfortable. There's this quote I've been reading all week. It's by Thomas A. Kempis. It's a really good book. It's called The Imitation of Christ. And it has this quote, and I really think it's a good word for our moment. It says, My child, patience and humility in adversity are more pleasing to Christ than much consolation and devotion when things are going well. Why are you saddened by some little thing said against you? I love that. Look, patience and humility in adversity. I think it's clear we're in a moment of adversity. The beautiful thing, Lord, give me patience quickly. Amen? Right? We have this opportunity to exercise these two things, and it's even better than devotion when things are going well. I do believe in our moment we are called to be resilient. And how we do that, look, we forfeit any hope of resilience. If we only serve God when it makes sense, and tonight's passage, for some of us, it won't make sense, and it's going to be fun, and you're going to get frustrated, and I hope that you're just gracious, and as we learn this passage together, that we're able to receive what God has for us. Sound good? All right, let's pray. Father God, I ask you that you would be with us tonight. Father God, I pray for uh, our people. Um, Lord, I'm just so grateful that we know our congregation by name, Lord, that we care for each other. We're such a tight-knit community, and Father, I do know that there are a lot of people that aren't feeling well. I'm grateful nobody's in the hospital, nobody's super sick, but they are down. And so, God, I, I pray for those who are tuned in online with us tonight. I just pray that you would give them a quick recovery. God, I'm so grateful that we're all playing it safe so we don't continue to spread whatever it is going around. But, God, I pray that tonight this passage is difficult especially in our era and our culture. And God, I pray that you'd soften our heart. God, I pray that you would give me the words to speak. And may we be faithful to the text. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. It's something I love and hate about being a pastor that has decided just to go through the Bible is you always find yourself reading stuff that is you don't necessarily want to preach. And this is one of them. The title of the message today is Women and Leadership. Women and Church leadership. Of course, I believe in what we believe, but what we believe the Bible says we're going to look at tonight, typically in today's world, I think is really misunderstood and misconstrued. And so again, we're going to put this to the test. If you want resilience, you need to follow God even when it doesn't make sense. And for some of us in the room, what we believe about women in church leadership, it might not necessarily make sense to you right away. And so I think this is a good growing moment for all of us. Just see, this is probably the most controversial passage on women and church leadership, and we're going to do it, all right, all in 30 minutes. All right, it says in verse 8, in, chap in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands, look at this, men, without anger or argument. It's like he's met a man before, right? Right? This is just what we do. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles. We're going to talk about what does he mean here, right? All of a sudden, the girl's like, oh, no, I did my hair tonight, right? Uh, don't worry. Okay, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel. Aren't you glad we're doing this passage? Verse 10, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess to worship God. Here's where we crank it up a notch. A, wo a woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead... This is the hard one, guys. She is to remain quiet. I think there's context here. Stay with me. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. When I tell you I'm a Bible preacher, I am. We just go right through it. 
and we actually don't feel bad about it, and we really believe that this is truth, but I really believe it's easy to misconstrue what this passage means. And so let's uh, gather together, and let's just really march through this passage uh, just line by line, and I think we'll gain a lot of understanding. Before we even do that, let me give you a couple uh, point, three points right away that tells you, I just want to give some context uh, to this issue or doctrine of women and church leadership. Number one, this is a second-tier issue. We talk about this a lot at our church when it comes to doctrine, and it's really important for us to know there's actually only a few things that we can die for where it's like, I will never change my view. Like Jesus is God kind of stuff. We will never, we're never like, yeah, maybe. No, Jesus is God, right? So this is a second tier issue, meaning really it's called a theological triage. First tier is you die for it, you never change it. Second tier is you disagree on it, but just because somebody has a different belief than I do doesn't mean this person's not a Christian. So there's a lot of churches we'll see with women in church leadership, some churches, the woman is the pastor, or even other churches, it's the lead pastor. At our church, we don't believe that. We're going to talk about what we do believe. It's complementarian. This is a second-tier issue. There are churches that I love and appreciate and respect. Church of the City in New York, Bridgetown Church in Portland, and they have a male lead pastor, but they do have women pastors on staff. I learn from them. I love them. I think they're brilliant. I just don't agree with them on that conclusion at this point in my life. It's also very helpful for us to always say, there's a lot of stuff we hold in open hands. This is one that this is where I'm at, but I know so many brilliant people on both sides. I can see us changing. I hope that doesn't terrify you. Uh, We don't, anyway. Number two, we never tolerate emotional, verbal, or physical abuse. One of the worst things is churches get a rap of like, okay, women submit. And so some terrible, uh, some famous pastors uh, in the last five years or so have been exposed because they have given terrible advice uh, to ladies who are being abused by their husband. And they simply answer, you can't divorce. That's a sin. You just have to submit. So just deal with the punishment. Deal with the verbal punishment. Deal. No, we say we will separate. We will step in. This is not right. We will not stand for that. That is not submission. Um, you just have to get out of that situation. So make sure you know that. That can be definitely misconstrued, and we do not believe in that at all. Here's the third thing, just to kind of help set context for tonight. We will always fight and advocate for women's rights. Women's rights across the world, they do not have the same equality as men, and we believe that's wrong. We believe that women are in the same dignity as man. And so a lot of times, I mean, even in our country, the women have only been able to vote the last hundred years, right? There's still things uh, that we believe women should be, um, we should stand up for as men. It's actually our whole purpose, one of our big purposes as men is to make sure that the women are not treated, they're not marginalized, and in our culture, they are highly objectified. And we as a church should make sure we do everything that pushes against that cultural notion that women can be objectified. Agree with me so far? Okay. Now, those are the three things to set up context. I want to give you one more thing that's kind of helpful. I've had a friend tell me this week, I just really want to help understand the Bible more. How do I apply? So tonight's a lot of just real teaching here. And, um, and so here, here's what I do. When I encounter a difficult passage of Scripture, I use this order to understand what it means for my life. Number one, should be the next on the screen. I use scripture. So we must first engage with the scripture. What does this say? Let's be honest here. Let's get really real. What does the Bible say? 
Then we use tradition. It's really helpful for us to know our church history. My professor used to always say one of the biggest things that's wrong with our church today is that we're all spiritual orphans. We don't know our fathers and mothers of the past. It's so important for you to read church history and to recognize and wrestle how has the church interpreted these passages throughout all of history. That does help you get a balanced perspective. Number three is reason. Thankfully, God's word is in order, and there's some things that don't make sense to us culturally, but it is very consistent. What you see through Genesis all the way to Revelation, we can use our reason to see how these things tie together. And the last thing we're supposed to use in understanding Scripture is our experience. We cannot help but bring our experience to the table. So that helps us interpret things, whether good or for bad, and we have to kind of be honest about those interpretations. Here's what's wrong today. When we read the scriptures, our natural instinct, especially with something like women in church leadership, we first start with our experience. A lot of people that are against pastors or churches that are against women pastors is because in their experience, they've experienced men that are bigots. They've experienced really mean men who who put down women. And so now in your experience, you view every man in the church as bad. No, just your experience kind of ruins your interpretation of everything. Does that make sense? So we have, a lot of us, the world today, we first use experience. Everything when we read the Bible, we don't trust the scripture first. We look at experience. After experience, we think of reason. We think of what's logical to us, not what's logical to God. And then we go to scripture and think, okay, now what does the Bible say? Let me give you a chance after I've gone through these two filters. And then we go to tradition because in our culture, we hate tradition. I think it's a really sad thing. I hate that we really bash on tradition. Let's be grateful. Friends, we are not as smart as we think we are. There have been some brilliant thinkers and churches throughout history. I think it's helpful for us to be thankful for that tradition, not tying ourselves to it where we can't change. But there's a lot of tradition I think we throw out the window because we don't want to be quote-unquote religious. (sighs) Okay? So when you're dealing with a difficult passage, you first start with scripture, then tradition, then reason, then experience. And I think a lot of us are, have difficulty with passages like this because our order of interpretation is all mixed up. Okay? So now let's look at verse 8 through 10 and let's address this line by line. Aren't you glad you came tonight? All right. So it says, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess to worship God. Here's the point on that, to summarize verses 8 through 10. The church must eliminate worship distractions. This is all Paul is addressing here. He's saying the men, he's saying instead of lifting up your fist to fight, only lift up your fist because you're praising God. Okay, there are people in church worship, they were literally arguing and fighting during the worship service, right? Typical men, pigs. No, I'm just kidding, right? So this is what was happening, and can you imagine? Like, people were probably terrified to go to church. I don't want to get in a fight today. But this is what was happening here in Ephesus, and, and Timothy, is, as Paul is telling Timothy, get the church together, get it in order. There cannot be distractions. The enemy would love to cause distractions for you to think about what's happening to your right and to your left and not thinking about what's happening with the Word of God. Not only that is a distraction that the men were getting angry and fighting, but in this context, we believe what the women were doing is they were using church to get attention from men. So in context here, culturally, the way he's describing the apparel, 
of what the women were wearing, and he was saying not to wear these certain things, is because culturally, if you dressed and did an elaborate hairstyle in this culture, if you wore gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, you were putting off a vibe, okay? And here was the vibe. Either number one, you are a prostitute. Number two, you were giving signs that you desperately need a husband, okay? So he's saying, listen, women, now is not, this is not e-harmony, okay? This is harmony with the Lord, all right? So this isn't um, farmersonly.com, all right? Like, let us make sure when we're coming to church, we're here to worship God. Now, I am that pastor that says, I hope you find your love at church. That's the best way to find it. But find it before, start, before church starts or after, all right? Don't be looking during. And that's simply what was happening here. So again, we cannot confuse the art with the heart here. We have to know what is the heart of this. People misinterpret it and say, okay, now women, you can never look good at church. That's not what it's saying. It's saying culturally, what is something in our culture that if you wore that, you would be sending bad vibes to the men? Don't do that. Dress modest. Does that make sense? So that's how we apply it to our culture. So praise the Lord, we don't require women just to wear dresses and for men to wear suits. I'm literally in a t-shirt tonight, so sue me. Okay, so this is what we're doing here, right? So that's it. So 8 through 10, you can get like all freaked out about, but that's simply it. So we at our church, we're constantly trying to remove every distraction possible. Even bad music is distracting. We have great music. Bad lighting can be distracting. Bad sound. God has blessed our church with so many great people that are making sure none of those things are distractions. Okay, so we must eliminate church distractions. Here's the next thing. Let's look at verse 11. We're just marching right through, aren't we? Look, verse 11, it says, A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. That's our least favorite word in our culture. Verse 12, I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. These are like, honestly, as a pastor, if I'm being vulnerable here, these are the two hardest verses to understand. But I think it's helpful for us to remember context and remember Paul and the rest of the scriptures. Here's the next point. The church, I think, must eliminate gender confusion. What he's talking about here is making sure that the men do what God has called men to do and for the women to do what God has called women to do. Now stay with me. Jesus is historically, like in the time of Jesus, he was radical in how he empowered women. I mean, I don't have enough time I could. You can go like verse after verse. Jesus constantly empowering women. A, women were the first one to find out about the resurrection. He, he did incredible stuff and uh, in, in empowering ladies for the work of the ministry. And Paul actually does the same. Paul gets a lot of flack here because you have 1 Timothy 2 and also 1 Corinthians 11 and 14. It seems pretty harsh towards women, but it's helpful to remember him and how he did ministry in context. I want to mention to you three girls that are in the New Testament that interact with Paul. There are certainly a ton of girls in the, in the scriptures. Again, we don't have time for that. I would encourage you to, to research that yourself if this is something you're interested in. But here's just three names that I think are incredible. Number one is Priscilla. You have Priscilla in Acts 18, Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 16, and 2 Timothy 4. What is Priscilla? You always talk about Priscilla and Aquila. They were a husband and wife. And actually, it's pretty clear when you read those passages that I just mentioned. They led their house church together. In fact, you actually learn and see Priscilla teaches. Okay? And Paul is okay with that. He's excited about actually Priscilla helped Apollos learn better theology. 
And the other thing we see, based off of his writing in 1 Corinthians 16, Romans 16, Priscilla, literally Paul says it is a pleasure to partner with Priscilla in the work of the ministry. Okay, so that's just one person where clearly Paul empowers women and believes in them. The second one is Phoebe. She loves to sing smelly cat, smelly cat. Why are... <laughs> Friends, I'm so glad that worked. Whew, all right. Last second jokes never worked for me, but today it did. Praise the Lord. Amen. All right. Why are you... Do- okay, now, Phoebe, in Romans 16, she actually holds the title of deaconess. Okay? In fact, we actually have no mention of Phoebe being married, either in the show or here, right? And so Phoebe, we actually believe she is a single girl who is just a rock star, and she's making much of Jesus. In fact, so much, they call her a deaconess. She is a deacon. Now, we're going to talk about this in two weeks, what a deacon is. But real quick, an elder serves by teaching, and a deacon teaches by serving, okay? Deacon literally means servant. They're the ones serving people and their needs. Phoebe did a great job of that. Here's the last one I'm going to mention is Junia. Junia is incredible. In Romans 16, literally Paul says Junia is noteworthy, praiseworthy in the eyes of all of the apostles, So the people who are highest in rank, who are helping start the church, when they think of Junia, they're like, she is a rock star. She's amazing, right? She actually, what we see in Romans 16, she went to prison because she would not shut up about the goodness of Jesus. Incredible. So Priscilla, Phoebe, Junia, there's many more. Paul empowered women to do the work of the ministry. In fact, this is even more uncomfortable for some people. I love it. First Corinthians, by the way, I got three girls. I literally, my only, there used to be two boys in the household, me and my dog, Duke. He died yesterday. So now I'm literally the last man standing in my home. I love my girls. I love my wife. I love to empower them every step of the way. First Corinthians 11.5, Paul literally says to the women, not if you prophesy, but when you prophesy. Now, we tend to confuse what prophesying means. It literally just means to tell the truth. Today, we just think it's telling the future. That's not always the case. Now, With all that said, we still believe there are gender distinctions. We cannot be confused on what each role is supposed to participate in. Again, verse 11 is kind of clear with that. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. (sighs) Take another breath. Now, 1 Timothy 5 helps us with context. In 1 Timothy 5, we learn that there were women in this church that were false teachers and spreading lies. So some people interpret this passage to think when Paul is talking about the women, he is talking about those women who are spreading false lies. And so if you take it with that context, what it's saying, look, these women who won't stop teaching doctrine in the service, they're literally spreading false doctrine. So until you learn the truth of of God's word and understand the gospel, you literally should just not say anything. Just be quiet because everything you're saying right now is literally heresy. Okay, so that's helpful context for us to know. Another thing to know that I think is happening here is, again, he's talking about the worship service. I think what was happening is Timothy was preaching. And remember, Timothy was timid. And so Timothy would allow women to interrupt him during his sermon. And he would just kind of take a step back, and the women would kind of correct which that's terrifying to me. If you guys ever like, no, Trey, you're wrong. Here's the, oh, don't do that to me, all right? I got a few security guards in the room. We'll make sure that's taken care of, all right? So that's some context here too. We think 
Paul, Timothy knew what Paul was talking about because literally he knew what some of the women in the congregation were doing. And so he's like, put a stop to that. There needs to be order. There needs to not be worship distractions and there cannot be gender confusion. And that's when we get to these words, teach with authority, having authority. We believe, you'll see it next week, the office of elder or overseer or pastor, those are all interchangeable. They are the ones who have the ultimate authority in preaching God's word. Now, there is a difference teaching under someone's authority and teaching with authority. So there are ways where we can empower women to teach, but they're doing so under the authority and banner of my leadership. This is how we actually believe this is what God has called us to do. The pastor, what does it mean to have authority? I think the easiest way to describe what does authority mean, as a pastor, my ultimate job is doctrine and direction. Doctrine and direction. When me and Caleb talk, Caleb is the other pastor at this local church, we believe we are ultimately judged for how we as a church believe in our doctrine, which is the core tenets of the faith, the things that we believe, and our direction, our core mission, our vision, our values, how we're serving the community. At the end of the day, it's on us. We are the ones essentially going to be judged for how we put this forth. Now, what, here's what I think is ironic. We in America want to give authority as a pastor to women Meanwhile, most churches in America don't even give that authority to men. Hear me out. We're thinking women should have that authority, and I'm thinking men don't even have that authority here. In a secular culture, we do not give pastors the authority that God actually bestowed upon them. And I know this sounds incredibly self-serving, but I'm saying this for the next pastor you have, okay? Whatever. It's really important to understand what authority is. Here's the question I want you to ask yourself, and I put it on the screen so you don't forget the question. Do you look to your pastor primarily for reassurance or for redirection? How you answer that question tells me if you see your pastor in a position of authority or he's just a good friend. I know how a lot of people answer this question. I was so dumb. I planted this church when I was 23 years old. Everyone was just looking at me for reassurance, okay? And so I've had to put in a lot of tears and effort to truly step into this leadership role of authority that God gave me. That's why First Timothy has been so encouraging for me, because he's saying, don't be timid. God gave you this role. Step into it. An easy example, all the time, nobody in this room, of course, right? But all the time when people ask me advice, Whenever I tell them advice they don't want to hear, they're mad and they go away. And I'm like, then why did you ask me for my thoughts if you were mad when I gave you my thoughts? Why? They didn't come to me because they wanted redirection. They only asked me something because they wanted reassurance. When we preach something like this passage tonight, a lot of us already had a predisposition what the answer should be. And some of us are mad and leave because I didn't reassure you of your former belief that you had. You just wanted me to say, you're right, you're right, you're right. But sometimes you're wrong, right? And I have a pastor in my life. I have like three, and they redirect me all the time, all right? And it's so important to say, you know what, though? I submit to your authority. I actually don't believe it has anything to do with you, but God has bestowed this authority on you, so I'm going to respect the office and I'm going to listen to you, and my first step is forward, not backward. 
But by the way, if you're an outfielder, the first step should always be back, okay? But in, in Christian relationships, the first step should be forward. So we believe in empowering women, and I believe women are incredible teachers, and women are some of the greatest people to offer that reassurance. We should, as teachers, give reassurance. There's a lot of times where we're discouraged, and we just need to hear the truth that we know in a new way. But pastors, the office of elder that we believe are reserved for men, not just every man, very specific men, they are the ones who have to do the hard work of giving redirection. Okay? And they're doubly judged for it. Now, don't give this authority to too many people in your life. I don't think that's an issue in our culture. Our problem is we don't give it to anybody. In fact, I think about Jonathan Edwards. He literally preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You ever learned that in school, right? Thousands of people came. If I even just say that that's my title, most of the people wouldn't come, right? Like, we're in a position in church today where, like, pastors almost have to beg people to come to church. There used to be a time where the pastor said, you do this, and you did it. Now, they misused that power, and they corrupted it for the rest of us. So I understand I have to work to gain your trust and your love. But let me just say this. I encourage you not to come to this church anymore if you do not see me in that authoritative position. Why? I want you to find a pastor that you respect and you love because it's the best thing for your soul to have authority in your life and for you to take truth and to put it in your life. I would rather just be humiliated and you leave here, but find a pastor you respect and follow than for you just to stay around here because I don't think it's what's best for your soul. What makes me sad during this time of COVID, a lot of pastors I'm talking to, they've had people who have done ministry with them 5, 10, 15 years. And just because they had one bad sermon or they talked about one political thing, they left. That's so sad to me. I think that means we've always viewed the pastor not in the position of authority that God is calling us to. We're just looking for reassurance. And the moment you tell me to redirect, I'm out. This is really unhealthy for us. Now, so we believe we should empower women like crazy. But there is that line, redirection versus reassurance. Here's Tim Keller. Whenever you're in trouble, just go to Tim Keller. That's my life ethic, okay? He's an incredible author. If I don't understand something, I go to him. He has this quote, and here's what we believe about women and, and church leadership. God forbids one kind of role in the church to women, as he did in Israel. We must not jump from that to forbidding all teaching and tasks to women, this one role is pastor, right? Just that ultimate authority. And we shouldn't assert all sorts of specific tasks are off limits to women. For example, working outside the home. Of course, we'd think that's great. Teaching males over 12. We're about to introduce our youth group, and literally Shelby is going to be the, the teacher of it. Speaking from the front of the church services, we do that all the time. Literally, we have our ladies are the ones who lead our worship. Um, it is better to say that everything a man who isn't an elder can do a woman can do also. I'm going to read that one more time. This is what we believe. It is better to say that everything a man who is an elder can do, a woman can do also. We believe, again, I'm not going to lie. I'm a, I'm a father of three girls. I want to lean a kind of a more, quote unquote, progressive direction, just kind of naturally within me. But I know that this is right because it's what scripture clearly teaches. And I base that off of scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Now, I don't have time but we have a lot of women doing a lot of ministry positions in our church. We have women in great positions of influence, and I'm so grateful. The majority, actually, of things that make this church work are ran by women, and we love that. But we do reserve the office of pastor and this overall 
Like, again, I, I want to emphasize, women can teach, but if they're introducing new doctrine, that is not their position. Men are the ones, not even just all men, but elders are the ones to bring forth doctrine, like the Trinity, and make, like, if you, we're the ones who are setting forth that model and that example. Does that make sense? No. Okay, verse 13. It says, for Adam, and then we'll close, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. We can easily misinterpret verse 15, so stay with me. But why all of a sudden is Paul bringing up Adam and Eve? What he's doing is he's recounting the, the creation narrative. And I believe he's doing this for two reasons. Number one, he's showing us that this principle that uh, of men being the, the head uh, of leadership is not just a cultural issue since creation. This is a timeless value. Always God has designed it to be this way, even before the fall, right? This is how God designed men and women to complement each other. But the second thing that's really interesting, I even learned this week, is the heresy of Gnosticism was infiltrating Ephesus. Here's what Gnosticism teaches, that Eve, I never learned this till this week, Eve was the one who took of the fruit. All y'all think it's an apple. We don't know if that's true. Okay, it's just a fruit, right? Took of the fruit, and because she ate it first, Gnosticism teaches that women, all women, have a special power and special knowledge that men will never attain. Some of you are like, well, that is kind of true, isn't it? It's not because they ate of the, apple or the fruit, right? They're just amazing, right? But this is actually what they believed. And so in Ephesus... Feminism was very much a big thing to where, like, men cannot refute anything that a woman would say because they aren't smart enough to give a reason why she was wrong. They believe women had a superior thought life, and you could never say otherwise. They were superior to men when it came to knowledge, and so men should be the ones that shut up. Creation account does not give this account, and that's why Paul is recounting it. He's saying, no, men or women, we're not superior or inferior. We complement each other. We have different roles. Uh, here's the next point. I think it's helpful for us in understanding men and women. Discord, the fall, all sorts of bad stuff entered the world when Adam denied his role of leadership and Eve despised her role of companionship. When the serpent tempted Adam and Eve, all we read about is Eve and the serpent interacting. Why? Because Adam was told to be the one that stands for the truth and pushes away the serpent. Instead, he denies his role of taking the lead. And oftentimes what it means to lead is to be the one that has to go through the heartache stuff. Yesterday, I was the one who had to go take my dog to put him down. I said, girl, I believe in women empowerment. Can you be the one that takes Duke, Right. But I'm the leader. I have to deal with some things, and I can't deny it, right? So I have to step into the painful realities of life and take the one to lead. Adam said, nah, I'm going to step back and let Eve take over. A lot of men allow, a lot of us just step back. We're too passive in our leadership. Eve was believing the lies of the enemy, and, and essentially the enemy was like, Eve, you're inferior. Eve, what did God tell you you should do? You have a way better position than being the helper. And so she despised what God created for her. So because she despised that, she stepped out of her role to do something else, and it wind up bringing all sorts of suffering, all sorts of pain. We say this a lot at our church. You rob your soul when you despise your role. You rob your soul when you despise your role. 
I want us to think about that in reflection. Some of us are denying our role and we're underfunctioning. We're not doing what God's called us to do. Others of us despise our role and we overfunction. We do things that we're not called to do. Stay in your lane and recognize the beauty that God has for your lane. There is more than enough goodness, more than enough influence, more than enough power for how God designed you. We are all made equal in the eyes of God. We all have equal dignity. And honestly, we can all make the same amount of impact. It just looks different. Here's the last point, verse 15, and we're done. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. When you read this right away, you almost think he's saying, as long as girls get pregnant, everything will be okay. That is not what the passage is saying, okay? Here's the last point. The church must eliminate gospel addition. What this is saying is the only way that the woman is saved is actually the same way only the man is saved. And it's through the line of Eve came a promise, the promised one, Jesus. Our only hope is through that birth line that ultimately led to King Jesus. Ephesus, much like ourselves, was putting their hope way too much in their gender. They were defining themselves in their sexual attractions. They were defining themselves by who they were sexually. And God is saying, no, the only identity you need to hold on to is that you are a child of God. This is the only hope. Our sex, our gender is a gift, but it is not God. It is not what saves us. Paul is pointing to the hope of all mankind. Our hope is not in what we do. Our hope is not in what we don't do. Our joy isn't what we possess or what we don't possess. Our only hope is in the promised one. In Genesis 3.15, Eve was given this promise. Through you will come a son who will smash the enemy's head. This is the hope we have. And when we forget that, when we start despising where God has us and we get so angry about who we are, how God made us, we start to try to add to the gospel. The only hope we have is in Christ and Christ alone. God's goodness is enough. God's created order is enough. The way God made you is good. His plan is perfect. So we as the church, I think we get caught up in this gender war when we start to believe that Jesus is not enough. But he is enough. He cares for us. He loves us. He has a unique plan and purpose for every single person in this room and for those listening online. And that's what Paul wants us to get. Don't add to the gospel. Don't say it's only for men or it's only for women or it's only for this political party. It's only for this type of person. It's for everyone, and it's when everyone recognizes nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. I bring no other argument. I bring no other plea, but that Jesus died, and he died for me.